KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. The Inflation Reduction Act, that huge piece of legislation which was passed by Democrats in Congress and signed into law by President Biden, addresses a lot of issues, and that includes health care. This law is going to have a really positive effect on an awful lot of Americans when it comes to health care costs, and we wanted to parse out the details. So we caught up with Dr. Robert Field. He is a professor of law and a professor of health management and policy at Drexel University. So the Inflation Reduction Act, I wanted to talk to you specifically about the healthcare aspects of it, because reading this seems like this does a lot of really important things. Is this as big a deal as it seems to be? I think it's a very big deal, both directly in the short term in terms of its own terms, extending subsidies for people who buy ACA policies lowering uh, the cost of prescription drugs under Medicare, allowing the government to negotiate drug prices, but also in the long term, it sets a framework for expanding on some of these provisions so that the, uh, for instance, the subsidies for ACA policies, uh, which were originally supposed to expire in the next few months, now will have a new lease on life for a few years, could end up becoming permanent, or their value could also be increased. And the negotiation of drug prices, for instance, uh, which begins gradually uh, with 10 drugs and 15 and 20 could be expanded in the future to most or or even all drugs. Uh, So all of this creates a framework that could be built on in the future. So the law has short term benefits and long term benefits. Let's start with the subsidies, because this is something I heard people talking about for months not so more from a panic that, oh my goodness, these are going to expire and people aren't going to understand when they go to sign up for insurance that stuff's going to be $1,000 more, $800 more than than they are used to. Did this simply ex, uh, expand or ex- extend those subsidies? Does it do something new or are we just dealing with the same thing, but it prevented the a catastrophic rising of premiums? Right. Basically, it continued. Uh, the subsidies that the legislation put into effect a couple of years ago. It expanded uh, the no-cost policies up to about uh, 150% of the poverty level, uh, which means that people earning that amount can get health insurance essentially for free. And it eliminates the cliff uh, where if you earn four times the poverty level prior to this law, you were cut off from subsidies. And now the subsidies can continue as long as your health care costs are more than eight and a half percent of your total income. Uh, So it does prevent the end of the subsidies, which would have happened at the end of this year and not coincidentally would have started to take effect just before the midterm elections. But on the positive side, it does extend them for another few years and allow a lot more people to have coverage. And to kind of what you were saying in the first one, setting the framework, it seems to me something like these subsidies, even if there's an expiration date, kind of the longer they're around and the longer they become part of the norms of people buying on the the Affordable Care Act marketplace, like 
it's going to be harder and harder for this not to eventually just kind of become forever. Am I being too naive there? No, I think that's a longstanding political dynamic that once you give people something, it's really hard to take it away. Uh, just look what happens when politicians want to limit Medicare or Social Security. That was part of the thinking in the creation of the ACA. The supporters of the law wanted it to go into effect uh, as soon as possible and to have people get accustomed to it. So it would be harder for a future administration or future Congress to do away with it. And basically, they were right, because future administrations and Congresses tried to chip away at it, but were not successful in doing away with it. If you think of these subsidies and the political dynamic, if there's a future Democratic administration, they're ideologically uh, going to be favorable to continuing them. If it's a Republican administration, they're not going to want to be responsible for people suddenly having to pay huge increases for their health insurance and then possibly get blamed for it. So the longer this stays into effect, uh, the stronger lease on life that it has. Now let's talk about the prescription drugs. You mentioned this in your first answer. Kind of dig down into all the things that this does with prescription drugs. So there are a lot of moving parts to the prescription drug part of it. Those elements are phased in over the next few years. Uh, so people will cognitively know it's there, but they won't feel the effect, uh, certainly in time for this year's midterms and in time as well uh, for many of these provisions for the 2024 uh, presidential elections. But the most consequential, at least politically, is allowing the Medicare program to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies over the price of several very expensive drugs. And it begins with a set of 10 in the first year and then goes to 15 and then goes to 20. Um, those are expensive drugs that potentially could save Medicare a lot of money if it negotiates the price. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry is very concerned that this is the camel's nose in the tent, uh, that once the government can negotiate the prices of a few defined drugs, it'll go on uh, to negotiate the prices of, of all drugs. In terms of Medicare beneficiaries, there will be phased in a $2,000 maximum on cost sharing. So you will not have to pay more than $2,000 out of your pocket each year for all of your prescription drugs under Medicare Part D. Um, most people don't have to, don't reach that limit. But if you have a condition, cancer, for instance, that involves very expensive drugs, uh, you can bust through that limit uh, many times over and uh, it can bankrupt you. So to those people, it can be quite important. There's provisions limiting uh, increases in premiums, increases in the cost of drugs one year over the next, and eliminating the copay for catastrophic coverage. Right now, if you incur costs over about $6,000 a year, uh, you pay 5% of the rest. Doesn't sound like much, but again, if you have something like cancer with very expensive drugs, 5% uh, of a huge amount is still a huge amount. Uh, so that subset of people will see uh, large benefits. Uh, so you put these all together and it will make uh, a substantial difference uh, to a lot of people and predominantly those people who are very sick. Why is it, and you, know, you mentioned it'll take a few years for all of this to to start to be felt. 
Is there a reason why there's so much runway before this stuff kicks in? Is it just getting the bureaucracy uh, in place and, and kind of setting the table or or is there a reason why it's not immediate? A couple of reasons. One is, yeah, it takes time to uh, staff up and, and gear up for, for a new regime of uh, um of the drug benefit, um, there are also accounting issues uh, that when you cost out uh, a law like this, uh, as the Congressional Budget Office does, uh, the more you, longer you can delay uh, the implementation, uh, the lower the overall cost looks. Uh, they usually look at 10-year projections. Uh, so um, uh, I, I'm doing a little bit of conjecturing here, but I think part of their reasoning uh, was that they could make it seem less costly uh, to the overall federal government. And I'm just curious, for a country that loves free markets, why wasn't Medicare allowed to negotiate these drug prices? It, it seems almost counterintuitive. Uh you know, it almost just seems like a big gift to, to, to big pharma. Like, is there a reason other than they wanted to protect big pharma that Medicare wasn't allowed to negotiate? Cause it wasn't just that they didn't like the law said they couldn't. Am I correct? Yes, that's right. For a couple of reasons. One is political. Uh, they needed the pharmaceutical industry on board to get it passed. Uh, this was back in 2003 under the uh, George Bush administration, and they weren't going to get the industry's support if they allowed Medicare negotiations. The industry's policy argument is that Medicare is the 800-pound gorilla of health insurance. And it, it not only covers uh, now about 60 million people, uh, but those are the people most likely to be using drugs. So if Medicare refuses to cover a drug, that could be it for the drug's marketing. Uh, so it's not explicitly controlling prices, but it can indirectly have that effect because if, if a drug company doesn't agree to Medicare's negotiation posture, it may end up not being able to market that drug. Um, so that's, I, that's what they're afraid of at, at its core. Um, perhaps it has some validity. Uh, but then you have to ask uh, why it is that we allow uh, unregulated drug prices that sit most heavily on the people who can afford it the least. And you mentioned 19 years ago, this was Medicare Part D, that this was all part of, correct? When that was uh, created, yeah. Um, so that uh, wanted to expand Medicaid. It was uh, Medicare. It was the largest expansion of Medicare to date at that point. Um, but because it was uh, George W. Bush, he wanted to do it in a very business-oriented way. And that's why uh, the benefit is provided through private HMOs and prescription drug plans. And that is why they had the provision protecting the drug industry from negotiations uh, under Medicare. You talked about pharmaceutical companies' concern. I think you said the camel's nose in the tent. I mean, this really does seem like it's kind of setting a flag in the beachhead and kind of changing things here. And I saw a lot of Capitol Hill reporters putting stuff on social media, almost in all, like as this was passing, I've never seen big pharma lose. Is this a loss for big pharma? Is it that, that, that big? I think it is a loss. And an indication of that is that they're planning lawsuits to challenge it. Uh, 
And because of the delay in implementation, uh, they have a few years uh, to, to bring those suits and, and have them be heard. Uh, they, uh, I can't remember uh, when they've had a loss this big. Uh, they spend a huge amount of uh, lobbying and they, they know how to use that money. Um, I, again, it starts out modestly, but it could be the precursor for much more stringent government controls over um, pharmaceutical costs. Uh, now, they are encountering increasingly strong headwinds. And part of that is the new specialty drugs and now genetic uh, therapies uh, that cost hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars a year. And they may have finally pushed the envelope too far. Uh, but this is something that Democrats have been pushing for since even before Medicare Part D. Uh, they've tried again and again. Uh, I think it was in 2008 when the Democrats took Congress, they said this was going to be the top of their agenda, and they never got anywhere with it. Uh, even with a, a democratically controlled Congress, this is, is a significant political milestone in pharmaceutical law and policy. And I'm just curious, I don't want to put you on the spot, but, you know, big pharma, you know, talking about lawsuits, what would they challenge here? What would they be saying is unfair or unconstitutional or unlawful, whatever? Yeah, I don't think it's it's unconstitutional. Um, I'm just guessing because I haven't looked at the substance of their lawsuits. Um, they could say that it is, well, they could make perhaps a constitutional claim that it's an unconstitutional taking uh, without due process, uh, that it's a constraint on freedom of contract. Um, it, they certainly would argue their policies, that it would be less money for research and innovation. Uh, but a strictly legal argument, um, uh, I don't know. I, I, to me, it, it would be a stretch. There's also something in here, and I know there was a push to cap insulin at $35, I think, a month for everybody that fell short of the necessary votes. Uh, but there is something... Uh, for $35 a month on insulin for people that use Medicare. Am I correct? That's correct. Uh, and that's obviously a big deal for people who use insulin. Uh, I find it really surprising that Republicans voted against uh, expanding that to the overall population because people's lives are at stake there. Uh, but at least uh, it applies to people on Medicare. Among the other provisions of the law are eliminating cost sharing for preventive services, which had applied to private policies. They now apply to Medicare for things like vaccinations and, and screening tests, uh, limits on the increases in premiums for Part D and increases in the subsidies for people on Part D with lower incomes. So just to kind of come back to where we started, like the more you talk, it's been my experience when something is presented as a big deal, the more you dig into it, you go, okay, yeah, I see, but it's not as, this almost seems like the opposite. The more you dig into this, the more you're like, oh, well, that's going to help thousands of people. Oh, well, that that's going to touch just about every family in America. Like this really, you know, yes, it'll take a couple of years as you point out, but this is about as significant medical legislation we've had since the Affordable Care Act was put in place, no? I think that's right. I think it's in, unfortunate uh, the way this has been played up uh, in much of the media, uh, which is to compare it 
to what Biden originally wanted. And it's about a third as expensive as what he originally wanted to do. And so there are a lot of elements of this that he didn't get. So if you're comparing it to that, then it's a come down. And then there are a lot of um, groups that had a stake in specific provisions of the broader bill that are disappointed. But if you compare it to zero, uh, this is, again, a a very big deal. Uh, and a very significant piece of legislation, maybe not as significant as the ACA, uh, but as you said, probably the most significant follow-up to it uh, that's been passed yet. And you kind of referenced this earlier, and I know we were talking about this off the air, the way it kind of sets the table, and that might be part of its most enduring legacy. Like we could talk 30 years from now, and say, well, you know, what we enjoy, X, Y, and Z, we enjoy now, it actually had its, you know, the seeds planted back in 2021. Like, it seems like that type of, of legislation. Yeah. And you see that with a lot of social legislation, uh, where we take things for granted today. Uh, so social security is part of our economic and social fabric, and it has been for about 80 years. Uh it had a specific historical context, which was the Great Depression, which was people being thrown out of work, uh, getting too old to work, and being destitute, had no form of retirement income. Um, You look at um, Medicare uh, from the mid 60s, and you see a situation where most people got their coverage through an employer. And once you retired, you might get social security, but you wouldn't get any health care. Uh, and as healthcare became more expensive, that became more of an issue. So you see that with a lot of these big social uh, programs. They were passed because of specific events at a specific historical time. But once they exist, people come to rely on them. Uh, they don't remember and don't really care what happened decades ago. What they know is that it's part of their life today. And if it gets taken away, they're, they'd be in big trouble. We talked about the insulin capping at 35 a month for everybody that didn't make it into the final bill. Uh, are there any other things that you thought you might see that we, we aren't seeing or what would be kind of the next step if we see legislation that were to build on this? What would you like to see? Yeah, um, I would like to see the ACA subsidies extended indefinitely. Um, it brings a lot more people uh, under the umbrella of coverage, uh, which will save lives. Uh, it will also save people's savings. Uh, and it will also support a lot of providers, uh, a lot of hospitals, a lot of doctors, and somewhat ironically, will help the drug companies because more people will be able to afford their products. One of the, what I see is one of the more unfortunate aspects of the ACA's original drafted was what was called the cliff at four times poverty level. So if you earned less than that, you qualified for a subsidy to help you buy an individual policy. The minute you hit 400% of uh, poverty, your eligibility ended. So you could be making just above that cutoff and healthcare could be unaffordable. And if you were just a little bit poorer, you could get a subsidy that would make it affordable. Um, This uses a new formula for deciding on the subsidies. It's no longer the cliff 
at four times poverty, but it's based on your income. And the benchmark is eight and a half percent of your income uh, should be the maximum that you have to pay for health insurance. And so you could earn well above that 400% of poverty cliff and still get a subsidy, uh, meaning that uh, people will not be disincentivized to be making more money. And that unfairness of just one side of the borderline means no subsidies will be eliminated. So I, I think that's especially important. When it's all said and done, and you kind of talked about you know, not remembering when pharma lost like this. Are you surprised this got passed with, you know, in a 50-50 Senate, Democrats have a handful more in the House? Like, are are you surprised that they got this to the finish line? Uh, I am somewhat surprised about the pharmaceutical negotiation part, because you think of all that got stripped out of the originally proposed full bill. Uh, A lot of it involved the environmental protection provisions, uh, the global warming provisions, and then that carried interest tax loophole, uh, which uh, Christine Sinema managed to strip out. I was surprised that they did get rid of that. Pharma has a, uh, a history of spending huge amounts of money very dexterously to get its way in Congress. And given that other industries were able to lobby for the elimination of provisions they didn't like, uh, it's surprising that pharma was the one industry uh, that was not successful in that regard. The industry uh, that is just used to living, uh, to winning. I'm not quite sure why that is. But when you look at the bill as a whole, I don't think they come out so badly. Uh, They do get more people covered under Part B. Uh, they do get more people um, with uh, uh, lower deductibles uh, w- when they um, buy their um, uh, pharmaceuticals. Uh, so they are going to see more revenue from this. I think their fear, as I said before, is the nose under the camel's tent. That if you start with a few drugs, uh, there's no telling where it will end. And you've created a framework for extending it. Uh, but I don't think that they're losing as as much as they say they will. Uh, Having said all of that, though, I am surprised that so many other provisions were stripped out. Uh, The coal provisions, uh, the Joe uh, Joe Manchin didn't block, Uh, the tax provisions. uh, I am surprised that this uh, did not get deleted. Uh, But I guess uh, all good things must come to an end. (laughs) So pharma uh, finally... uh, uh, didn't come away victorious with something. And we kind of touched on this earlier. The Affordable Care Act, it was controversial. It was pushed through on a partisan Democratic vote. Uh, Republicans have worked overtime for years. Doesn't seem like as much now. But now you have this bill that's actually building on it. Uh, you know, and you kind of you you referenced this earlier, you know, people we're hopeful that it would become entrenched and become part of everybody's lives. And we've kind of seen that the ACA has kind of weathered the storm and now it's growing. Yeah. The ACA is the law that has a lot more than nine lives. Um, There were vigorous attempts to kill it before it was ever passed. Uh, And as you pointed out, it was done purely along partisan lines. 
then there have been numerous lawsuits, actually dozens of lawsuits, uh, even beyond the ones that reached the Supreme Court to try to kill it or limit it. Dozens of attempts in Congress uh, to kill it or limit it. Uh, administrative uh, barriers that were uh, put up uh, by the Trump administration, but it just kept going. Uh, and now it's not just live to see another day, but it's lived to see uh, an expansion through the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, so this law has real staying power. And the thinking of the proponents back in 2010, uh, that the more entrenched it gets, the harder it is to eliminate it, uh, has absolutely been validated. And now the opposite phenomenon is happening. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.